the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abiah, and Abiah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. May God add his blessing to our reading of Scripture. All right, so here's my question. Why do you start a book that way? <laughs> Seriously. I mean, if you're a good writer, you know that when, uh, when you write a book, you got about 30 seconds to be able to engage the reader so they want to read on what's next. And if we're honest, that's kind of flyover material, right? You, you don't look at that and go, oh, that, that draws me in. In, in fact, um, good writers say things like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Or they say things like this. The cold passed reluctantly from the earth, and the retiring fogs revealed an army stretched out on the hills resting. That's how you start a book. Or maybe like this. Uh, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that's interesting, right? That makes sense. You, you start a book with something that engages your reader right away. You don't start with a long list of names, many of which you can't pronounce, let alone know who they are. And yet, Matthew starts out his gospel exactly like that. Why? 
Why does he start with a list of names? What's his purpose? What's his point? What is he trying to accomplish with starting out this massive gospel with this kind of introduction? Well, over the next seven weeks, we're going to figure out why he did that. And uh, today marks the beginning of a uh, seven-week study of Matthew chapters 1 through 4 called He's the One. And you can gather a little clue from my title as to why he starts out his book that way. It's because he's pointing to Jesus as the one, the Messiah. This book is a massive and complex treatment of the life of Jesus. It is a glorious journey through his teachings, his life, relationships with other people. We're going to walk with him, see what he does, see how he interacts with folks and all so that we will understand Matthew's point that Jesus is the Messiah. And so, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we begin this uh, series on this book, we um, ask you to use it to open our eyes to um, both Matthew's purpose and the point that he wanted to drive home into the minds and hearts of his hearers and readers We pray that you would help us to take the next step in our relationship with you and that we as a church would take the next step as a collective body in discovering what it means for Christ to be preeminent, to be Lord, and for us to be passionate followers of him. And so we ask you to use this book and specifically this list of names today uh, to teach us, uh, to help us know why you put this in here for our instruction. And we ask you to do that because we are a needy people and we need your word like food for our souls. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we jump into the list and kind of help you understand all of the point behind those names, I want to set the stage a little bit for you first as to what's going on here uh, in the whole book of Matthew. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 1, you'll see that Matthew begins with these very words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Every single one of those words is incredibly important. They all serve a purpose, and they help us understand what the overall uh, direction, theme, and uh, really point is of this book called Matthew. First, notice that he calls it a book. It's a book. It's filled with stories about the life and ministry and the teachings of Jesus. It's a book of narrative, and yet at the same time, there's all sorts of sermons in it as well. I don't want you to think for a moment that the Gospel of Matthew is just a collection of stories for story's sake. What you need to know is that Matthew wrote this book for a very specific purpose, and he used stories in order to help solidify the point he was trying to make. And this... You know this, right? Let me explain why. You will remember an illustration that I give you far longer than you will the point of the illustration. Okay? So after a sermon, some people come up, oh, that great story that you told this and this and this. And I don't ever ask this, although I'm tempted to, to say, and what was the point of that story again? Because invariably we don't remember. But the story is locked in our minds. And that's why narrative has power. And what Matthew is going to do is going to use the stories of Jesus' life in order to tell us something very important about God, about the work of grace, and about Jesus. So it's a book. It's also a genealogy. It says, a book of the genealogy of Jesus. Now, notice that it doesn't say, 
a book containing the genealogy of Jesus. It says a book of the genealogy of Jesus. The word genealogy is the Greek word Genesis. Sound familiar to you? (laughs) The word Genesis, and it means a a beginning or origins. So you could translate it this way. You could say it is a book or a narrative or a story of the origins of Jesus Christ. And it could very well be that what Matthew intended was for this gospel to be seen as the record of the new beginning that God began in Genesis, but now was creating a whole new or fulfillment of what was in the past. Some students of Matthew believe that an appropriate title for the book could even be this. The book of New Genesis, wrought by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Other options could be the book of the history of Jesus Christ, or this is my favorite, this will be the story of the new creation. You see, when Matthew's writing, he is trying to capture here the work that God is doing through the person and work of His Son. And it's the new beginning, it's the new day, and you're going to see why in a moment. Notice, it is also the book about Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Those three titles are very important. They they summarize Matthew's view of Jesus That he's the son of Abraham. He's connected to the Jewish people. He's the son of David. He's connected to the throne of Israel. And he is Jesus Christ. The word Christ means anointed. means he's the one upon whom God's favor rests. It's the same word that is used to describe the Messiah. And so his point is, it's this Abraham connection, this David connection, this Messianic connection. His entire point is Jesus, he's the one. And it's written to Jewish believers to try and remind them about all of the beauty of what Christ was in their midst. Remind them of the stories, or also to tell people who didn't abide by Jesus' teaching or listen to what he said, so that they would know that he is the one that you missed. You missed him. He's the one. He's the Messiah. So, secondly now, what is it about this book in terms of the author, the setting, the, the environment around which it was written? Well, it was written by Matthew, also called Levi in other Gospels. And, and Matthew was a, a tax collector in the uh, city of Capernaum. And uh, Luke chapter 5 tells us that one day Jesus was walking by him and saw him and said, Matthew, follow me. And Luke says, and Jesus left all, meaning he left his profession. And those of you who know your Bibles a little bit, you'll know that tax collectors were usually not known for their ethical behavior, but they were also known for being exceptionally wealthy. wealthy. And, and Matthew left it all in order to follow him. The book has a strong Jewish flavor to it. The word fulfilled or references to the Hebrew Old Testament are all over the book of Matthew. Let me show you this. Look at chapter 1 and verse 22. This is the first time that we see this. There's this equation that Matthew uses frequently. It goes something like this. In order that what was said by blank might be fulfilled. And he's referring back to an Old Testament prophecy. And here you see it in verse 22 of chapter 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So fulfillment in Matthew means, first of all, that something that was said in the Old Testament has now been completed by Jesus. So when the Old Testament talked about a virgin conceiving, 
And later on in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll see Mary conceives. It's because it's a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy that things talked about in the past are now coming true. But fulfillment is not just limited to that one definition there or that one sense. Fulfillment also means completion. Fulfillment not only means that something has become a reality that was promised, but it also means now that it's been filled up. It's been completely brought to the, the, the full surface level so that it's now complete. And all over Matthew, you'll see Jesus being pictured as the one who came to not destroy the law, but to fulfill it, Matthew 5.17. So the audience of this book that Matthew's writing to needs to know that Jesus was the one who... In effect, was the one who was promised years and years ago, but even more than that, his teaching, his life, was the filling up of perfect righteousness. So this Messiah was not only the one who was promised, but everything he did was the full manifestation of what it meant to follow God and to be his son. He was the Messiah. So the audience that he's writing to seems to be a group of Jewish Christians who needed to fully understand the way that Jesus had fulfilled the Old Testament, not just having all these promises come true, but also the way in which his teaching shed the full light on what God's community needed to be. And then he wanted them to see that Jesus... His teachings fit with the law, that it was this perfect obedience, this teaching now that Jesus has that now causes the law to finally make sense. It's the missing piece, if you will, in this puzzle that God had given to his people. So what is the theme? What's the singular point? Let me try and summarize it for you this way. The theme of Matthew is this. It is to show that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah sent to bring the kingdom of God to the entire world. Matthew's lens through which he sees the work of Christ is that, yes, he's, he's got Jewish roots and, and a Jewish foundation, but this Jewish Messiah has been sent to us in order to take this gospel message, this salvation, the rule, the reign of Christ, and take that to the world. That's the scope of Matthew's audience and what he intends. The storyline of the book goes like this. It begins by presenting Jesus, his lineage, his miraculous birth, the coming of of, um, of Christ to the world. It, uh, it then begins to talk about his empowerment for ministry, his baptism, and then right away it moves into the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, three wonderful chapters of summary of what Jesus' teaching is all about. And as Jesus begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount, we begin to get the sense that he's fulfilling the law and the prophets, and as he's doing that, he's also attracting outcasts of the society. So Jesus' ministry begins to be built on two things. One, he's this, this great teacher who's fulfilling and making sense of the law, and he's also bringing this good news to the outcasts of society, these people who have been marginalized. And as time goes on and as ministry continues, Jesus' ministry to those people and in terms of the fulfillment grows in scope and in its opposition. The disciples are taught. Jesus confronts the religious leaders. He he heals sick people. And all throughout this book, he receives a, a mixed reception. And then his disciples don't understand what he's saying. All throughout the book, you just want to say, don't you guys get it? And they, they don't. And the religious rulers are are offended by what he says, and they make plots to kill him. Everything grows in its intensity throughout the book. And Jesus even then talks towards the end of the book about the closing of the age, about things that are to come. So, yes, toward the end of this book, we'll talk about end times kind of issues. 
And then all of this culminates in a major conflict in Jerusalem where Jesus is um, arrested, he's betrayed, he's brought to Pilate, he's condemned, he's crucified, he's buried. And then God raises him from the dead. Jesus appears to his disciples and then he gives them his final charge to them. And here's his final charge. You know it, but it's you can see it a little differently now. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What is he saying? I'm the one. I've got all authority, all power. And then he tells them to do what? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. He's saying, take this message and spread it out, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's saying to them that this beautiful reality of Christ being the Messiah needs to be taken to the outer ends of the world, that they should take the kingdom of God message and declare it all to all nations, to anyone who will listen. And so he presents Christ as this rightful heir, the promised deliverer. And what the book does is it alternates between narrative and then sermon, and then story and then discourse. And the point is all the same, that Jesus is the long-awaited one, and every story in this book has a theological reason, a purpose for it. So don't think that this is just a collection of the stories of Christ. These are here for a very specific reason. Matthew has an agenda, and that is why he starts with a long list of names. He has a point for starting this way. He has to. He has to know you don't start a book this way. There's got to be a reason. And the reason why he starts it this way is because he wants us to know from the very beginning that Jesus is the one, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, who has come to bring the kingdom to every nation. Matthew's vision is a global one. And that's why he writes this glorious book. So, what is it about this genealogy then? What is it about? Look at chapter 1 and verse 2. We not only see that it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the or son of son of David, the son of Abraham, and it begins verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. So, what we'll see is this 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 rootedness in the Jewishness of Jesus. In fact, skip ahead and look at verse 17. You see something else here. You'll see that he says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. So there's two things you need to notice here. The first is that there's, there's three different groupings, and also there's this number 14 issue. First, the three um, groupings are the three seasons. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that represents three seasons in biblical history. In fact, if you have an ESV translation, they even organize the genealogy with those paragraph breaks. The first paragraph break is Abraham to David. The second paragraph break is David to exile. <clears throat> and the third paragraph break is exile to Christ. Notice that Matthew traces the list all the way back to Abraham. He doesn't go all the way back to Adam like Luke does. And also notice that if you've got Abraham on one side and Christ on the other, who's right in the middle? David. Keep that in mind. So you've got these three different seasons in, in biblical history. What, what is the significance of these three seasons? Well, the first season from Abraham to King David was the season where God had promised that in you, Abraham, all of the earth would be blessed. 
And so when Jesus comes, he is promise fulfilled. He was the one who, who Abraham and Sarah were told, one day you will be a blessing to the entire nation. I promise you that day will come. He's the fulfillment of that. He's the fulfillment of the promise to David that David would have a son who would reign forever on the throne even though they were in exile. David to exile is a dark season. A season when God disciplined his people, when bad kings came on the scene, and God then used another nation, first Assyria and then Babylon, to discipline his people. And they were in a foreign land, displaced. And while they're in that foreign land, they hoped and longed that one day, one day the Messiah would come and bring the people back. And Jesus is the future hope that God promised back to the nation of Israel in its exile. And then from exile to Messiah, that third season, it connects the people of God to God's faithfulness in spite of their rebellion against Him. The the season from exile to Jesus is a dark season. And the season where God doesn't speak very often and they're longing and waiting for for God to, to renew them again. And Jesus becomes then the faithfulness of God displayed. So there's three sets of 14 generations. Now, you need to know something that... Matthew, when he records this genealogy, never intended for this list to be a a record of all the names. Because there are a number of names that are not on the list that could be on the list. But every name that's on the list needs to be on the list and is a a part of the lineage of, of Jesus. The reason why he has this list here is not just simply a genealogy. He's using this genealogy to say something. He's using this list of names to tell us something about the faithfulness of God. That God keeps His word, He keeps His promises. That even in the midst of dark and dreary seasons when you think God has forgotten or abandoned us, He's showing that this one was the one who was promised. Fourteen generations, fourteen generations, fourteen generations. All meant to communicate the faithfulness and the grace of God. Now, what about the number fourteen? Well, Matthew uses it to overlay David in a very clear way on top of this genealogy. Let me explain why. If you were to count the names on the list, beginning at Abraham, and count them all the way, don't do it right now, the 14th name, guess who it would be? Guess who it would be? Good, okay, you're listening. Good, so David. So the 14th name would be David. But there's something else here. See, he wants us to know that this person, Jesus, was connected to the, the rule and the reign of David. Luke chapter 1 verse 32 describes that Jesus would be the one to whom the Lord would give the throne of his father David. But this 14 has some greater significance. In, um, in Jewish tradition, they would assign um, particular letters numerical value. So if you had a, a name, your name would have a numerical value based upon the, the, the letters that were in your name. For example, let me show you this. David would be D, W, and D. So the numerical value for the letter D was 4, and the numerical value for the W would be 6. That's the Hebrew um, letter. And the numerical value for D would be 4. There's no vowels in Hebrew, so quickly add 4 plus 6 plus 4. What is that? 14. Woo! 14. Good job. See it? You see, and what he's doing is using a symbolic device to say everything about this list relates to David. That David is the one who God promised would reign on the throne, and therefore Jesus, the son of Abraham, connecting him to his Jewish roots, the son of David, connecting him him legally to the throne of Israel, Jesus Christ, he is the Messiah, he's the one. 
The point of this entire list is to be sure that we know clearly that Christ was the long-awaited promised one. It's, it's, a, it's a, not just a list of names that you should fly over. It's a record of God's grace. You know what this list means? Listen, this list means that God keeps His word. He means, it means that He is faithful to all of His promises. That when God says something in His word, you can bank your life on it. I was reading this week in Joshua 21, verse 45. Here's a verse that I came across that was just so stunning to me. It says this, Not one of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. You know that's important? That's important when you're about ready to die. That, seriously, that's when you need to be reminded that not one of his promises ever failed. Because you're just getting ready to move in from this life to the next. And he promises, absent in the body is present with the Lord. The only assurance that that is true is the fact that God has always kept his promises. Romans says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, if God doesn't keep that promise, we're in big trouble. Secondly, it reminds us that even in dark days, listen, when God is disciplining us or circumstances are hard, the devil is not right when he tells you God has forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten you. You're just in the crucible that he wants you to learn lessons in. The list reminds us that there were dark days in Israel's history when they didn't see where it was going to end. They couldn't see around the corner, but when they found that when they got around the corner, guess who was there? God was. He was already in their future. He already knew. So one of the things that needs to be part of the vocabulary of your home and your life is, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know God's in control. I know He knows what He's doing, even though I can't explain all of what's going on. Finally, it shows us that God has everything worked out. He's, he's got it all worked out according to His plan. Even though we don't see the ways or how or the whys, He's doing what God always does. God never is ever out of control. And every single name, every single generation, all 14 in their gatherings, all communicate to us that God had a plan and He was working it. And you know what? He has a plan for your life. He's working it today. And you may not be able to see how it all works out. You may not know what the big picture is. But it's helpful to see things like this that we can see. Here's the big picture to help us understand what the broader broader brush strokes of what God is trying to accomplish. So we use something like this to remind us of why we get into the details of life. When we get into those details, that we not forget that God has a, has a bigger picture plan that He's trying to accomplish. Every once in a while we need to kind of take a step back and go, Oh, that's right, God's been faithful here and here and here and he showed himself to be true in this way and that way, and that, that helps us. We can savor the beauty of all that God has done. One of my favorite things to do at the end of a, a Saturday work day at home is to be able to savor all that I've done. Here's what I do. I, I mow the lawn, or better yet, my kids mow the lawn, and uh, uh, you know, do all the, the trim work and everything else. And I love to be able to walk to the end of the driveway and just turn around and worship. Right? <laughs> Come on, some of you men do the exact same thing. One time my wife at our house in Michigan had a long driveway. I, I walked down the, end of my, the road and my wife would say, what are you doing down there? And I was just 
worshiping, just looking and enjoying and filling my heart with pride and just looking at, at what we've accomplished here today. But it helps to be able to get the big picture, you know, because sometimes you're in the middle of all the little penny any details of life and you just get stuck on little dandelions or little weeds or, or little things that aren't right. And it's helpful to take a step back and be reminded, oh, that's right, God is in control. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's always right around that corner. And there are some times that it's really helpful to be reminded, especially at the beginning of a book, that God had a plan. He worked his plan. He was never late. He was always on time. And he was exactly doing what he needed to do in order to accomplish his agenda. And that's why he starts this book this way. Not for a bunch of flyover names. Okay, skip that. Whoop, check the box. Read that chapter one. It's to be able to savor the beauty of the fact that God was working a wonderful master plan in bringing the work of Christ to human beings. So God always keeps his word. The second thing I want you to see is that God's grace is broad. You know what's amazing about this list? There are really stellar people on this list, and there are really big losers on this list. There are some people who just really blew it. People who, frankly, you wouldn't put on the genealogy of Jesus if you were on the genealogy committee. You wouldn't do it. You, You wouldn't put them on that list. There's people in Jesus' life, in his, in his past, in his lineage, that aren't real good emblems of righteousness, and yet they're still there. It was kind of funny when I was growing up as a, as a kid, my parents one time did a, our genealogy. And uh, in our neighborhood, right around the corner, as you turn, there was this house, and we knew this family that lived there, and they were not the, the most upstanding citizens in the neighborhood. They, their kids were unruly, they, um, they didn't take care of their stuff. I mean, they were kind of known as, the, as kind of the, the other side of the tracks kind of family. We didn't really even hang out with them, but we knew their names, and et cetera, et cetera. And one day, my, my dad brought the, uh, our genealogy home, he rolled it out on the table, and all of a sudden we looked, and guess who was on our genealogy? Of all things, this family who lived right around the corner, you know, and we want to take some white out. No, 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 they're not part of our family. No, 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 they're not part of our kin. And some of you have those, some relatives that you're like, yeah, technically, but no, we don't, you know, this is, and you, you wish maybe they were in the basement all Thanksgiving or Christmas, but no, they're there. But you, you, you don't control your lineage. You can't control who's in, so to speak, your family tree. And what's amazing is that this list that we have here of Jesus, is not a stellar list of people. What's also stunning is that there are five women that are listed. And normally you don't put women in genealogies, but yet Matthew does. It's almost as if Matthew went out of his way to include these women on the list. It's almost as though Matthew wants us to know that the gospel is not a male-only gospel. And all God's women said... Yeah. It's not a male-only gospel. And the second thing is, is that the gospel came to people who were marginalized. What you're going to see, if you were to look at the entire list, is there's some people not only who were stellar candidates of righteousness, some people who were real losers, but also some people who were kind of the marginalized people in, um, in, in the culture. People who shouldn't be on this list. People who, there should be no way that they're included in Jesus' family tree. One commentator put it this way, God's grace in Jesus the Messiah reaches beyond Israel to Gentiles, 
beyond men to women, beyond the self-righteous to sinners, in saving his people from their sins, Jesus is not bound by race, gender, or scandal. I love that. Thank God the gospel is not a one-race gospel. Thank God it's not a one-gender gospel. And thank God it's not a gospel for people who have no scandals in their past. Well, church gets kind of weird when we start to think that the gospel is just for one race. Or we act like that. Or we start to think that the gospel is just for one gender. Or it gets really weird when we think that the gospel is just for people with no scandals. Here's a newsflash. We all have scandals. The beautiful thing is we have a Savior who became the offscoring of the world, became the scandal of the world in order so that we could be declared part of his family tree. Stunning. He adopts us and calls us his sons. So there's some interesting people here. The first one is Tamar. Do you know who she is? Verse 3. She's um, she's listed there. It says, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Let me remind you who she is. She's the Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah. So she's the Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah. Her first husband's name was Ur. He's a bad dude. God killed him because he was so wicked. So then, she doesn't have any children. She doesn't have a husband. So according to the customs of that day, um, Ur's brother, Onan, needed to marry her and bear children with her so that she wouldn't be left impoverished. Well, he refused to do that. So God didn't like that, so he killed him. Okay? Well, about this time, Judah's thinking, I'm not giving you any more of my sons, right? Because every time this, every time someone, you know, gets married to you, bad things happen to him. So Judah refuses to give her any other of his sons. Well, she devised a scheme. According to Genesis 38, she, she pretended to be a prostitute and, uh, was by the side of the road. And one day when Judah was going down the road, he made a really bad moral decision, propositioned her. And conceived a child by her, but he had no idea that she was a prostitute. No idea. Oh, excuse me, he knew she was a prostitute, pardon me. What she didn't know is that it was his daughter-in-law, Tamar. That was, that's the real story. And so, what happened? She left and um, went back to her home. Judah went back, back to his home. And pretty soon finds out, whoa, Tamar's pregnant. Somebody comes and says, hey, you need to know Tamar's pregnant. And we had a big family meeting time. And Judah says, you need to tell us who, who's the one that you've committed adultery with. She says, oh, I don't know, just whoever this guy is whose signet ring and staff these are, which happened to be Judah. <laughs> woo Wow. Talk about a soap opera. And this, listen, despite the fact of the abuse that was done to her. That was terrible what Judah did. Despite the prostitution, despite the incest, God includes her in the line of his son. (laughs) That is so gracious. Then there's Rahab in verse 5. She's not only guilty of prostitution, for her it was her profession. So if Tamar made the mistake once, Rahab was guilty of doing it as a lifestyle. 
Remember, she was the one who lived in the city of Jericho. Again, she's not an Israelite. She protects the two spies who were investigating the land. She lied in order to, uh, to, to protect them in her house. And God not only spared her life and the life of her family. Look at this. She was David's great-great-grandmother. You don't put these people in your tree. These are the people who other people have in their backgrounds. Or at least we think that's the case. Then there's Ruth. So, so Ruth, like Tamar and Rahab, was not an Israelite. She was from the land of Moab. And her husband died. Then she goes back to Israel with Naomi. And that's where she meets this wonderful man named Boaz. But Ruth was a Moabite, and her husband, who was an Israelite, shouldn't have married her in the first place. Because Israelites were not supposed to marry Moabites. And yet, he did it anyways, and Ruth here was given grace, because not only did she become a part of the nation of Israel in this sense, but she also marries this wonderful man named Boaz, and everything about her story drips with the sweet, kind grace of God, because this is a woman who was born on the wrong side of the Jordan River. Born on the wrong side of the tracks. And yet God was incredibly gracious to her. And then finally, there's Bathsheba. Verse 6, she's not even mentioned by name. I think in a little bit of poetic sting, verse 6b says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. She has a name. Her name is Bathsheba. But just so you didn't forget, she was the wife of Uriah. Remember, she was, of course, the woman who David had committed adultery with, the, the, the woman who David had then arranged to have her husband killed in battle. And the consequences of, of their sin was that the child conceived in her womb was, was killed as a consequence. But then it's their son. It's their son. The, the wife of Uriah's son, Solomon, who becomes the next person in the lineage of Jesus. This is not how you would have designed it. This is not how I would have designed it. This is a bumpy genealogy. This is a, a, a list of people who have skeletons in their closet. And yet at the same time, this list is loaded with a wide swath of God's grace. The genealogy is filled with people who've got things in their past they wish they could undo. The genealogy of Jesus has things um, from their past they'd like to forget. The genealogy of Jesus has has people who've had painful experiences at the hands of others. The genealogy of Jesus is filled with people who've done really well, some who've done really poorly, and many who know what it's like to be an outcast. But they're still part of the list. That is what is so cool. It's beautiful. In fact, it reminds me of um, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read this to you from the message, because I love its, um, its tone. Here's what it says. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We did it all. We, we, did, we all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. But instead... 
immense in mercy and with an incredible love, He embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on His own with no help from us. Then He picked us up and set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. You know what's amazing? Is that this genealogy tells us that God keeps His word, but it also reminds us that God's grace is exceptionally broad. Exceptionally wide. The church is supposed to be a place of people who know one confession. Oh, I'm a wretched sinner, but I know the one who can save me from my sins. He's the one. He's the one who can take all of our sins and wash them away. He's the one that can take the one thing you can't change your heart and turn it around. He's the only one that can do that. Which is why if you've never received Christ, never understood or embraced the reality of what it means for Christ to be Savior and Lord of your life. Listen, you are missing the only one who can change what you cannot change your heart. So here's my question. Do do you see your story in the genealogy of Jesus? Ever felt like an outcast? Like nobody wanted you? Rejected by everyone? born on the wrong side of the tracks. Those kind of people are in Jesus' family. Ever felt unfairly treated by others? Felt like you were neglected, abused, taken advantage of? Ever tried to get ahead on your own and then have it blow up in your face? Those kind of people are in Jesus' family. Ever made a really bad decision in the past? Ever done something so bad you had to live with it for the rest of your life? Consequences on other people? Wish you could go back and erase the past, but you can't. Those kind of people are in Jesus' family. Ever done something that hurt a lot of people? I even thought as I prepared this message, there's got to be one person in here did something and somebody died, literally. Those kind of people are in Jesus' family. Ever started out really strong? really going hard after Christ in a job, in a marriage, in your morals, only to blow it. Those kind of people are in Jesus' family. The point is, as Paul said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The word is super abound. It's like a super ball. It goes boing, boing. It takes off. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It means that God, in Christ, takes takes your sin and my sin, and He eclipses it with the work of Jesus. And the beauty of what Matthew is trying to tell us here is that Christ is the one. He's the promised one. The one who's come to bring the reign of God, the kingdom of God, to the world. And so He wants us to walk with Jesus. He wants us to hear His parables, hear His teaching. He wants us to see his confrontation with the religious leaders. He wants us to see how he died and then to celebrate how he lives. All so that we will understand the beauty of the swath of his grace and be able to take that to the nations because this is what the nations need. This is what every single person in the world needs to know. That God's grace, in spite of your past, can make you a new person. But it only happens by one person. His name is Jesus. And so against the backdrop of our individual sin and against the backdrop of the regrets of our past, Matthew calls us to look to Jesus. 
to receive Him, to remember again what it was that He did, and then to declare to the world that Jesus is the one, He's the only one. So this little list of names is not just a silly way to start a book. It is the summary of everything that Matthew will tell us. That Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, He's the one that came in order to bring God's reign to the world, His rule through Christ and His salvation. And then says, now go and take this and tell as many people as you possibly can. Why? Because this is the most glorious news in all the world. Jesus is the one. Father, we thank you that in your wise and gracious plan, you sent your Son to be the Messiah of the Jewish people and the Savior of the entire world. For any who would believe and trust in you. So, Lord, we all have pasts. We all have things we wish we could undo. And oftentimes the enemy can use those to just deal us hard blows. So thank you that this list is filled with some winners and some losers, with some folks who are stellar and folks whose pasts are filled with skeletons. Thanks for this reminder that you always keep your word and that your grace is exceptionally broad. So Lord, minister grace to us through this long list of names that we often skip over and that we tend to not see the real value of. Thank you that you always keep your promise and your word is always sure because your grace is exceptionally broad. And we ask this in Jesus' name.